when I saw the Colosseum, nobody had to tell me that's the Colosseum because I'd seen pictures and models, and therefore I knew what it looked like. And so when we got there, I knew that I wanted to enter that building. And the, the funny thing is, is in all the tours that I had taken previously, they're always uh, wanting to take you to all these various churches and to show you the construction and how wonderful they are. And, and to me and all my travels throughout there, I, I felt and believed that the Roman Colosseum was the most holy site, not the churches, because my brothers and sisters died for their faith there. So I took it serious. But, but again, I knew what the Roman Colosseum looked like. As a part of my Latin and, and history, uh, we talked about Hadrian's Wall. Now, I never saw a picture of Hadrian's Wall, never saw a model of Hadrian's Wall. I knew why it was built. I knew who built it, Hadrian. And, um, and when I was able to go to Scotland, that was one of the things that I wanted to see. And I got to see and stand above and stand on Hadrian's Wall. But I wouldn't have known it was Hadrian's Wall unless there was a marker that said, this is Hadrian's Wall, because I'd never seen any pictures, never seen any models, so didn't know. So why am I talking about this? Because I think most of you here and, and hopefully those who are listening want to go to heaven. And in heaven, there is a temple, if you will, a tabernacle that is built by God. And when we get there, I don't want somebody to say, well, where are we? Just as I knew exactly what the Roman Colosseum looked like because I'd seen pictures and models of it, I don't have any pictures or models, if you will, pictures of heaven's temple. But we do have some models of some of the inside. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle. And as a part of that, that's why you see the tabernacle furniture here is so that we can, as the writer of Hebrews is discussing the heavenly tabernacle and the earthly tabernacle, that we have some kind of sense of the model, since I don't have pictures to show you, because um, unfortunately, as of today, I haven't yet gone to heaven. And even if I get to go to heaven, I don't think I'm one of the people who get to come back to show pictures of my vacation. So, you know, it's a one-way trip. Once you're there, you're there. And so I, I want you to, so that when, when you get to heaven, and after you take the surprise off that heaven's real and that, that our faith is now sight, you go, oh yeah, Pastor Joe talked about that. That's what that thing is. Now it looks nothing, this, the, the one in heaven looks much better because it's, it's made much better and it's constructed much better and, and God did it. But at least I have an idea of what those things are when I'm there in the presence of God. So, turning to Hebrews chapter 9, starting with verse 1, it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, and this is called the holy place. Now in the Old Testament, as God instructed Moses, how to build a tabernacle uh, after they left Egypt and were at Mount Sinai, God said, you are to 
build this tabernacle under strict guidelines. It's to be this wide. It's to be this way. It's to be constructed these things. The tabernacle furniture is to be constructed by acacia wood and gold or bronze or those types of things because it is a copy of what is in heaven. So you are doing something that isn't just, if you will, just a tent. It has a symbolic meaning, and it is to be the same dimensions, if you will, on earth as it is in heaven. And so when he instructed on the tabernacle, he first put basically a movable wall. They had columns, and they had uh, tents and those types and fabric that would create a courtyard surrounding what would ultimately be the tabernacle. And there would be, when you go through the, through the open space, there would be the bronze altar made of bronze where there would be sacrifices. That would be in the courtyard. And then the next item would be the laver, which was like a bathtub, if you will. Uh, so that after the sacrifices, the, the priests could wash themselves so that they could enter into the, the tabernacle. Now, it's important because God discussed and made exact parameters of the tabernacle. When it came to the temple, which the uh, Hebrews would know about and which we is they just were designed kind of in somewhat idea. There would be the, the bronze altar and the labor, and, and then there would be in the building a holy place and then a holy of holy. Uh, but it was a permanent structure, but it didn't follow the exact dimensions of the tabernacle. And so we have those, and then you have this tent, which is called the tabernacle tent. It's a, a movable thing. And so there was two rooms in this tabernacle. There was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. And it was separated by a veil, which would mark the, the two places. Now in the holy of holies, only the high priest one day a year, twice, could enter the Holy of Holies. But daily, the other priests would enter into the holy place to do ministry. So that's what I said. There were aspects of holy worship that took place in this. And so um, we'll first discuss this thing over here. That is what's called the table of showbread. Now, for us, this model is one foot by one cubic. So it's about a third smaller than it would be. And it would mean not made out of wood and gold paint, but it was made out of acacia wood and gold. And on that table, which was always on the north side of the tabernacle, they would then put showbread, the bread, and there would be a loaf for every tribe. So there'd be 12 loaves. Now, because our table is small, and the breads are big, I put four, so one-third. So, but that's the idea. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to do an exact representation. I want you to kind of get an idea. So when you walk into the actual temple of God, 
and you look, here you go. Oh, that thing is the table of showbread. And on there was each of the 12 tribes representing them. And they would be there a week, and then they would take the, the bread off and place new loaves. Now, the loaves that they would remove, that's what David ate that everybody got upset with. And then Jesus said, well, David did it. But there would be also representations. The bread represented that Jesus is our bread, our manna, that which came, he is the bread of life. And so there would be these New Testament understandings of these Old Testament aspects. Then there was on the... Uh, yeah, I got myself confused. Now on the south side, there was what was called the menorah, or the candlestick, and there would be seven branches. And in that, they would go every day or more, fill the candlesticks with oil, make sure that the wicks were trimmed so that there would be light within that. And at the same time, Jesus is the light of the world and he's that. So there was a New Testament understanding of the Old Testament. But they would go in daily or more to make sure that those lights were on, that uh, they were burning properly. Now, then we'll go to verse 3. It says, Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with the gold, which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak in detail. People who don't understand what's going on will tell you that he must be confused. Because this thing that's here, which we call the altar of incense, in the earthly tabernacle was in the holy place. It was in the holy place because of practicality. They were to go in with coal and place it on the altar and then place incense, which would create a cloud of, of incense and fragrant aroma. And, uh, but you could not do that every day if it were not in the holy place. If it were in the holy of holies, you could only go there once, but the high priest had a specific job to do. So he couldn't do that. But in heaven, this thing is on the other side. This thing and the Ark of the Covenant where God sits is in the same room, if you will. But because of the earthly problems of not being able to have access to it on earth, it was on this side of the veil. Now it's important, so, well, how do you know that it's on the other side of the veil? For two reasons, because the Old Testament tells us that. And the second is that we are told that the incense in heaven are the prayers of the saints, which rises up before God. So when you pray, if you pray, so when you pray, and no matter whether you feel that your prayers have only hit the ceiling, in reality, if you're a believer, they go before the presence of God. 
That's an awesome concept. It's not that God not just hears you. He hears you from the throne of grace. So on the earthly tabernacle, it's here. Now we're told also in Revelation that under this altar are those who have been beheaded during the tribulation and they're asking God, when are you going to pay back? And God goes, give me a few minutes because there's some more of you that are going to be here. But after that, trust me, I'm going to take revenge. And so this thing that we called the altar of incense, which would have holes, and they would take daily and, and put them on it and then put the incense. Then what we have on the far above the baptistry is what you would call the Ark of the Covenant. It was a, basically an acacia box with gold with cherubim overshadowing and the place in between where the angel's wings are is what is called the mercy seat. That is where the high priest would place the blood sacrifice on the altar for himself and then for the people and then leave as soon as he can. And so... So when we get to heaven, when we all, you know, the song, when we all get to heaven, what a wonderful day that will be. You now have an idea that you're going to see what the furniture looks like. And I'm sure it's going to take you at least a million years to pay attention to the furniture. Because you're going to be so amazed by the glory of God that we can't get our eyes off of him. But, you know, so I, I know about a million years from now we're, we're talking about this. But at least you go, oh, I feel right at home now. This isn't foreign. I, I know what this is. And so that Ark of the Covenant, you said, in that con was contained the law perfectly kept, wasn't broken. Jesus kept the law. It was the Aaron's rod that budded, showing something dead coming to life, the resurrection. And it had manna, that which fed the people. And again, Jesus being bread of life. And so those are the items. And the priests would daily minister. That was their job of worship. Now the sad thing is for everybody else they just had to look up. They pretty much got to look through the opening of the courtyard. But that was it. There was a definite sense that you're not close to God. You are a far off. And that is what the blood of sacrifice by Jesus changed for you and me. We were no longer a far off, but we were now gaining access to the holy of holies. And so he's going to go on. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. So they would daily come, which they somewhat have us beat because we come weekly and offer, if you will, divine worship. We sing praises and, and whatever. Wouldn't it be awesome if we daily attended God by worshiping him? And it, But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. 
which is the symbol for the present time. So basically the Holy Spirit is saying, there is now a change in the covenant. Before you were far off, before you couldn't draw near, before there were those who worshipped for you. There were those who served God for you, but that wasn't your job because the Holy Spirit said, you're there, you are separated from God because of your sin. According to both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washing regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So he's saying there was a problem with the old worship. Yeah, you could offer all these sacrifices and you can offer offerings of built offerings and, and votive offerings and, and gift offerings and all these offerings, but doing all of these offerings never gave you a clean conscience. And even if it could, the problem was when the high priest would go once a year, there was another 365 days before you got to go back in. And so, if you're like all of us, you sin daily. So you have 365 days of remembrance that God has been displeased with us. But all of these things only relate to food and drink. and things. They can't make us perfect. They can't wipe away that sin and that shame. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus, Jesus did something different and unique from the high priest. The high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies on earth once a year. Jesus didn't go into the Holy of Holies on earth once a year. Jesus went directly into the Holy of Holies in heaven, where God is, where the mercy seat is, where the altar of the golden incense is. And he presented not the blood of a, of a goat or a bull or a ram or a heifer, he presented his own blood on the mercy seat so that we might obtain not forgiveness for a day or two, not forgiveness for even a year, but an eternal redemption. No longer do we have to worry about the next 365 days because our redemption, our forgiveness is eternal. Jesus' blood is more effective than that of blood and of goats. And he goes on to say, verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So he's saying, God had created this economy, if you will, of offering of the blood of goats and rams and heifers and ashes to signify this cleansing that was needed. And he goes, if that had some effect, 
not a perfect effect, but some effect. Can you imagine the effectiveness that Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, offering his own blood, will have on us? And that not only do we sit by now and say, well, didn't the priest do a great job? I mean, they, they bake really good bread and they put it on the table of showbread. And, you know, and, and not only that, they, the lights were so bright in, in that holy place because uh, they just did a really good job making sure the oil was clean and the wicks were they did, And, you know, when they brought the coal in from the altar and, and they placed it there and they put the, the uh, incense and it just, beautiful service. None of us got to see it, but beautiful service. He's saying, because of what Jesus did, we now get to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that the sense a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal, eternal inheritance. Now, last time we took a look at Jesus being a mediator. Remember I said a mediator tries to get you to resolve the differences between two sides. Usually in, in our legal system, you have the plaintiff and you have the defendant. And the mediator ultimately doesn't really care. He just wants an agreement and tells you, tells your case it's terrible and tells the other side it's terrible and just come together. Well, Jesus was as a mediator, if you will, because he reconciles us to God. But he is a mediator of a new covenant. Well, what's that covenant? Well, the old one said, you're afar off. You're distant. You're a sinner. You can't approach God. The new covenant says, Jesus paid it all for you. You are now not afar off. But Jesus says, in essence, I'm kind of taking your side. When you sin, my blood covers you. When you mess up and you're ashamed, Jesus says, there's no longer a need to be ashamed. I died for you. I am telling God, you are mine. And by the fact that you are mine, there's no longer a need for reconciliation because we've been reconciled. It's like saying, You're both the landlord and the tenant, and you get all the rights. It's a new covenant. It's a new contract. And it's not one that says, you're out and they're in. The contract is, we're all together. And it's a promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must also by necessity be the death of the one who made it. Now, here's the problem. Throughout the scriptures, they always talk about covenant, covenant, covenant. And we kind of think, okay, contract, contract, contract. What he's talking about here is not, quote, unquote, a contract in the sense of whether it's bilateral or unilateral, where you say, I promise to do this, and you say, well, I will do this. If you, you, know, if, if you promise... To take me to uh, the airport, I'll give you 50 bucks. And the guy says, okay, I promise to do it. 
That's what they call a bilateral, and if you break your promise, I get to sue you. The other is a unilateral contract that says, if you take me to the airport, I'll give you 50 bucks. Well, the only way you get to 50 bucks is if you take me to the airport. You don't promise me, you have to do it. Law school contract. Now, now you can pass the bar. Here is not, they're not talking about unilateral bilateral contract. They're talking about a will, a testament. That's why it says, it is by necessity that there must be a death. Well, what does that mean? If you make a will today, or let's say you made a will, ten, if you ever made a will, let's say you made a will 10 years ago. You can change it. You can write a new will that says, I revoke all former wills and testaments, and, and I give everything to X. And then, you know, maybe a year later, X does some dumb stuff, so you do a new will, and you say, I leave everything now to Y. But those wills aren't effective until you die. You can change it up to that time. So, for instance, if you, every example makes it sound like I'm, if you decide that you're going to leave your estate to the Animal Association, and then you change your mind because you don't like what they're doing, so you decide to leave it to um, battered women. The animal protection, that they were only an expectancy. But once you die, once the person dies, now they are heirs of your will. So what, what he's saying here is Jesus made a will for you, if you will. He made a covenant, and that covenant, that will, that last will and testament, can't be changed because there's been a death. God can't revoke his will. He can't change his mind because the will now is in effect because of the death. So that, and I wish they would have said that rather than covenant because we all think contract, contract, contract. So where there's... Where there is a will is there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while they who make it are alive. Okay, it makes sense now that when we're not talking about covenant, you're talking about testament. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and of the goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. So he's saying, even though the law was holy and even though it came from God, they said, what we're going to do is we are going to show how pure, how holy this is, is we're going to sacrifice animals, take their blood, and sprinkle it on all the items, even the law, and we're going to sprinkle it on the people showing that they are now made holy, and this is the blood of the covenant. Kind of remind you of somebody else? At what we call the Last Supper, who says, this is a new covenant in my blood. You see, if you don't read the Old Testament, 
You miss such riches. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. So he said, not only did all these things we're talking about as models, they placed, even if the fact that they were going to be placed in the Holy of Holies, they sprinkled it with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with the blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We have some, there is a group of people, a denomination, who misunderstands this verse. This particular denomination is uh, generally in control of politically of a state. And in that state, if you commit a capital offense, one of the ways that you can be executed, and it's your choice, is by a firing squad. Why? Because they say that this verse, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sin. Not the person's blood who needs to be shed, but the offering of the sacrifice. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these because they're human. They were made by humans. And so we are not holy. We are not separated. So when we do something, it needs to be cleansed. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages. The argument here is the high priest offering was not effective because it had to be done annually, but by blood of animals that could never perfectly cause us to be forgiven. But Jesus entered heaven, entered the Holy of Holies, entered where God dwells, and placed his blood on the mercy seat as an eternal offering for us, effective eternally. As a young, young, young child, I made a few model airplanes. I don't have enough patience to do really good stuff. But, but one of the things I like are like these sailing ships. This, this uh, couple weeks ago, I was able to go back on for the third time the USS Constitution. Great ship. Never lost a single battle. Some great historical aspect. They call it all call it all old Ironside. I've never seen a model as good as the actual ship. 
There are models of aircraft carriers. They're pretty awesome. The model takes a lot of work. That's why I don't do models, because I'm too lazy. But even when you do the model of the aircraft carrier, it has nothing to be compared with the actual thing. And guess what? You can't defend this country with a model. It needs a real one. Jesus was a real sacrifice, offering his body in a real temple before the real God. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. This is a very definitive statement. There are no second opportunities. You either accept Jesus' sacrifice now, or if you will, the offer is withdrawn when you read your last. You either accept forgiveness now or you receive judgment then. It's not, well, I'll wait till the last moment and if I mess up, I'll get a second chance after it is appointed for men to die once. You have an appointment for death. Most of us think, well, if I eat healthy and I exercise and I do all the things that I'm supposed to do, I'll live a long time. Don't take this wrong. I think you should eat healthy, except for kale. I think you ought to eat healthy. I think you ought to exercise. I think I should take my own advice. But I am convinced it will not cause me to live longer. It will cause me to live better while I am alive. You know, if I don't take care of my body, I won't be able to get up out of the chair. But if I take care of my body, I can do things. But there is an appointment for our, now, fortunately, I guess, none of us know when that appointment is. Some of us have a better clue because we've been diagnosed with some terrible disease. And even that, we don't know the exact moment. We just know the general time. But after this comes the judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait await him. So there's two groups of people. There are a group of people who have an appointment with death. And after that death comes a judgment. There's a second group of people who have accepted Christ's offering of forgiveness and the sacrifice of his blood before the true tabernacle of God. And he, as we have been told, after he gave his offering of his own blood on the mercy seat, sat down at the right hand of God because his job was finished. But he's coming back. He's coming back at the time the Father knows. 
Jesus says not even he knew. Whenever God decided he's to come back, and God knows when he's to come back, we don't know. We can guess and we'll be wrong, but we need to prepare our lives as if it was in the next 10 minutes or as if it was until a thousand years from now. He's coming back. But notice he's coming back, not in this case, to judge us. Because it's without reference. to He's coming back to deliver us. When the people saw the high priest exiting the Holy of Holies, they go, well, God must have been pleased for another year. Because he didn't strike the guy dead. We're good. Jesus, and when he exits, it's to confirm that he's not coming to forgive us our sins because we have been eternally forgiven. He's come to call us to himself because there's no longer... Well, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yes, it is, until he comes back. And then I'm just his. I'm a child of the king. I'm a, I'm a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I am his. Eternally, forever. And we need to eagerly await. Now, some of us more than others, the younger you are, the more you want Jesus not to come so much. Because you want to get married and you want to have a family and you want to all, all these things. And I know you're not going to believe me, but I've done all those things. And while I love my family and I love my wife and I, and, and I don't hate my life, you know, I, I don't have regrets because I know that if I change something, that I do something else stupid. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Him coming back's better. We need to eagerly await it rather than, well, God, can you wait until... We need to eagerly await it. Now, those of us who have been disillusioned by life says, oh, well, may he come now because we are disillusioned by life. No, no, we should not be eagerly awaiting him because we're disillusioned. We need to eagerly await him because nothing compares to being with him. This world is terrible, and it's getting worse. All you got to do is see the news, and people who are believers are being killed and arrested and captured and held for whatever. And people who don't even have our faith, people who have other faiths, are being arrested and placed in, in places for re-education camps. If you have any kind of faith, they want to eradicate you. So I'm not just saying, but for we Christians especially, we see the evil that happens in the world. We ought to get, God, you're holy, you're righteous. You know, I know you didn't tell me, but can I give you some advice? Come now. And then God goes, like Job, where were you when I formed the mountain? I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly when I'm going to send Jesus, and there's going to come a time. So I'll tell you what to do. Here's the, here's, the, here's the deal. I'll send him when I want to. You just eagerly wait for him. 
Sounds fair to me. Because quite frankly, I would rather eagerly await for him than suffer judgment. But we know if you read the books that between now and then, even though the world seems like it's going to heck in a handbasket, it's going to get worse before he comes. Even so, come quickly. Even if it takes the death of my loved one, come quickly. Because your presence is what the world needs, what I need, I need see you. I need to be in your presence. I thank God that I'm not an Old Testament believer who has to wait off in the, in the outside wondering what's happening with the sacred offering. My prayers are before the holy living God who loves me and knows when I get up and when I sit down. He knows the very number of hairs on my head, and it seems that he's having to subtract daily. But he knows me. And despite knowing me, he loves me. Not he loves me anyway. He loves me because not that I'm special, but because God is love. And it is great to be in a group of people who love you. It is awesome to be in the presence of a God who loves you and knows you and loves you. So may we eagerly be awake. May we praise him because he was not like a high priest who offered once and we're wondering about next year. We have a high priest who guaranteed our salvation eternally. It's not, you got it, you might lose it. You got it, you might lose it. But you got it. He guarantees it. Jesus' blood guarantees it. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us guarantees it. God's Word guarantees it. Therefore, He's as one of our May you get up off of that and come quickly. Even so, more time. And all of God's people. Pray.